Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 150. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you would uh, invite us into your throne room tonight so that we can study your word, so that we can... Um, so that we can bless you and learn of you and just soak in your mercy and your grace and your goodness. Um, we ask that you will uh, give us a heart to understand these things. Give us a, um, a supernatural capacity to, to receive the teaching um, and to incorporate it into uh, um, just to, to um, soak it in and to, to be able to retain it. Um, there's so much to learn as we study your word. And um, week after week, as we do here on these live studies, week after week, it, it can become uh, challenging to put to practice the things that we learn and to, to remember them and to, to, to meditate on them. Um, but we trust your Holy Spirit, and we know that he is going to continue to lead us and to guide us and to re, um, remind us of the words of the Master so that we can be... Um, uh, pleasing to you, and that indeed is our goal, Lord. We study in order to do, like Ezra said, and then in order to um, to teach others. Study in order to do, in order to teach others to do the same thing. So um, help us along as we, um, uh, uh, how do we say, share with one another, um, back and forth. Um, we study, we learn, we talk. We, um, we dialogue, and we just sharpen one another like iron sharpens iron. And we're so thankful for the opportunity to be able to have this um, fellowship time with one another. Um, be with us tonight in spirit, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation The Harvest. That's Kehilatunova, Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us in person. But if not, then at least go to our website at graftedin.com and take a look around. We had a um, concert, Ted Pierce concert, just recently. As you can see on my screen right now, that's the video that you'll see if you were to click on our website. Um, so no sermon for Mark. I don't think there was a sermon. I, I don't live in Colorado anymore, but um, the Ted Pierce concert is available if you'd like to view that on our YouTube channel. I also have my own YouTube channel, or my own um, uh, internet uh, website first, and I'll talk to you about my YouTube channel in a second. You can find me online at tetzetorah.com, that's T-E-T-Z-E, 
T-O-R-A-H dot com. I'd love to have you visit my website, take a look around, browse through all the resources that you see available there, and um, make yourself at home. Bookmark my um, website. Uh, I upload um, new content to it practically daily, just like the YouTube con uh, uh, website. Um, most of the content is written, but much of these days are turning into either uh, YouTube videos or um, MP3 audio podcasts that get uploaded to my iTunes uh, channel. So uh, give that a look over as well. Speaking of YouTube channels, this is where I spend a lot of my time lately. Uh, you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate's Torah Ministries, all spelled out there. And um, if you do go to my YouTube channel, the first thing you'll notice is that I do have uploads going out daily. So if you hit my YouTube channel, make sure you do um, make sure you do these five things for me. Number one, subscribe, so that uh, brings you into the loop of being in the family. Number two, hit the little bell for notifications so you know when I'm uploading new content. Number three, hit the thumbs up when you're watching my YouTube videos. That'll really help my YouTube algorithm and uh, keep me sorted higher on the list so my YouTube videos are recommended to other people. Number four, when you watch YouTube uh, content on my channel... Um, be sure to leave me comments. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, what challenged you, what you'd like to see. Uh, I get requests uh, through this particular um, uh, feature of the YouTube channel, and I try to read through and answer all the comments. I know it's uh, it's not really possible that I can answer everyone right away, so just give me a little bit of time, and I'll get around to your comments and questions. Uh, but that would really be great for that interaction. And then lastly, hit the little bell. I'm sorry, hit the little... Uh, arrow that lets you share the content with other people and that way we can all just kind of share together in the learning uh, uh, process so that would be great these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week uh, via the internet let me read some of the um, uh, uh, details let me blow that up a little bit uh, there that's a little better um, this is episode number 150 and the meeting date is August 7th 2021 the USA date uh, we meet each Saturday afternoon from 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. Central Standard Time so set your clock against the CST time zone and you'll be able to meet with us every Saturday afternoon for an hour during the hour-long study we have two 30-minute segments, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My. We're in part 66, and we're talking about dietary issues, cash root, and particularly how it pertains to clean and unclean. A little bit of a technical, uh, a technical discussion currently at the moment as to how do we interact with this idea of kosher and clean and unclean, and um, you know, is this even still relevant for us today as Christians? The second 30-minute segment of tonight's study is given over to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. It's more of an apologetics section and um, where we deal with uh, defending scriptural topics. And right now we've been on this. Um, it's been going on maybe it's easily over a year now. Uh, this uh, paper that I wrote is three parts um, about dealing with how do we understand the nature of our God, particularly the incarnation and um, the personhood of God and things like that. Uh, we're in paper two, and we're wrapping it up by doing review of certain important topics. So not we're going to the whole paper all over again, but just I'm pulling out specific um, uh, paragraphs 
that I feel that I wanted you to latch on to during the study. We're ready to turn into paper three where we talk about the Holy Spirit, but right now we're doing a review of paper two of Yahweh and Yeshua. So we're in part 83 of that study tonight. Hope you can stick around for it. We have also got a featured uh, YouTube video from my Short Questions, Short Answers live series that I did a few years ago. So we're just working our way through those videos again. The video tonight is the question, did Jesus follow all the laws of the Old Testament? So these are questions that were submitted by ebible.com. I didn't create the questions, but I did create the answers. So hope you can stick around for the video section and watch that as well. That'll be later on in the study. Here are some of the brief details. If you'd like to join us week after week on the Saturday afternoons from 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. Central Standard Time, we meet via Skype. The easiest way to join our studies is to go to my tatesatora.com website, click on the banner at the very, very top that's orange that says Live Internet Studies. It'll bring you to this page that you're seeing on my screen right now, and then just click on the blue Skype logo there. If you're joining during the live studies, this will take you right into the live study. Otherwise, if you click on that Skype link, it'll launch Skype in your browser and tell you that we're not starting the study just yet. So either way, bookmark this page, and that way you'll have access to the Skype studies week after week. We'd love to have you join us week after week for the live studies because we've got a live exclusive chat that goes on after the studies. And uh, we meet together, and I turn off the microphones, and we just chat with one another, pray with one another, um, and uh, answer questions and things like that. It's a chance to dialogue with the other students and to dialogue with me as well. And then lastly, before you leave my website, take a chance to scroll all the way to the very bottom in that black footer section where you can see some Hebrew writing. If the Lord is laying it on your heart to bless me and, and bless my ministry, this is the way you can do it. You can click on the little donate button and securely donate via PayPal, either with a credit card or bank account. And this is the way that you can channel funds to me. And I would be so blessed to receive uh, your generous uh, gifts and donations there. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my, let me bump that up really big so I can just see everything. Uh, and that's where I want to be. Let's see, do I want it that big? I don't want it that big. That's a little too big. Uh, let's go like this. That's, that's fine. All right, so we're in this section of verses, uh, Romans 14, verses 14 through 18. And um, we're talking about, we're entertaining this question that I have in my commentary. What exactly does nothing is unclean in itself imply? Paul uses this phrase. So let's read the verses. I'll read the English and the Hebrew, this, or the Greek. This will be part of my liturgy as well. And then... Um, uh, we'll jump down into the study where we left off. So we've got ESV over on the left and um, SBLGNT Greek on the right. So right there, the uh, English says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Seems self-explanatory, but we'll talk about it. Verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy for do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 16. So, do not let what you regard as good 
be spoken of as evil. He's primarily addressing the believers there, but I believe there are unbelievers in the congregation, just like there are in any congregation, and so Paul's going to want the unbelievers to be aware of the central message of serving one another in Messiah. Indeed, um, in verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God, speaking about food, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you're tearing one another down over something as simple as food preferences or uh, special day preferences, fast days or something like that, well then you're not going to be uh, exhibiting and and, um, uh, demonstrating what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, Righteous, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit are more important than uh, simply uh, having your choice of meat on the table. And that's just kind of it's common sense, in my opinion. Uh, verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So no matter what we do with this passage, no matter how we slice it and dice it, in the end, we've got to come back to the central theme that this is about serving one another and deferring to one another. Jew and Gentile serving one another together in Messiah. Even if you're talking about bringing in the idea of unbelievers into the mix. The, the, the overall um, purpose of the body of Messiah coming together is to serve Messiah. And we, the local expression of that, your local church or local um, uh, Bible study or wherever you, you are serving one another together, that is your opportunity to serve Messiah as you yield to one another, as you um, serve one another, then you're serving Messiah in this particular way. Let's go back up and read the Greek real quick. I won't wax long on this. Uh, starting in verse 14 right there on the... Um, right side of the screen. The Greek says, Oida kai pepesmai in kurio yesu hati udin koinan di hautu e me to lagedzameno ti koinan enai ekino koinan. Verse 15. E gardia broma ha delfasu lupetai uketi kata agapain para pates me to bromatisu ekinan apalue huper u Huper hu Christos apethanin. Verse 16. Me blasphe mestho un humonto agathon. Verse 17. Ugar esten he basilea tu theu. Brosis kai posis ala de kaiusune gai kai erenen kai. I'm sorry, yes, a rene kai kara in penumati hagio, and the final verse, verse 18 in the Greek, ha gara in tuto duluon to Christo uarestas to theo kai dakimas tois anthropois. And that'll do it for the um, the reading from the Greek. Uh, we'll, we might have a little bit more liturgy tonight, I'm figuring, um, uh, based on request, I think I'm probably going to read something out of John later tonight for the Greek. But thought I'd bring that in for the uh, uh, discussion tonight. So, in the notes that I have under this particular um, passage, we began talking about the technical terms of um, clean and unclean, and the fact that in the first century, these terms that we interact with today, like clean and unclean, um, the uh, challenge is that our English Bibles and our translators use terminology that doesn't always match 
what the original Hebrew and or Greek counterparts, counterparts would have been. And so it behooves us when we're reading through our Bibles to just be aware of the fact that perhaps there might be a little bit of cultural disconnect or linguistic disconnect um, as we're trying to study these uh, uh, terms and these particular passages. So when Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 14, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, I showed last week how that most translations from the English render a Greek word unclean there that is actually not really, in my opinion, the best rendering. Now, I'm not trying to say that the translations are bad. Don't get me wrong. What I'm trying to say is that there are nuances to translating, and I think that most English translators probably just gloss over the nuance of this phrase unclean, not aware of the um, fact that it's probably better used in a technical sense to convey something different. And since we're having this nuanced discussion, we're splitting hairs here, then I'm going to go in the direction of um, saying that uh, let's redefine this word. So here's what we learn. Um, let me just drop right down into it again, and we'll pick. I'll, I'll read part of this again. I didn't read all of it last week, anyway. So we asked this question. We're using um, we're using uh, Acts chapter ten, in verse fourteen. Peter has this discussion with God, and God tells him, or God shows him in a vision, uh, this sheet with all manner of food, and God says, "Arise, kill, and eat." And the, the implication is that God wants Peter to ingest or to partake of these animals. The problem is, all of the animals on the sheet are not found in the kosher dietary list. They're not permissible animals to eat, according to Peter's understanding of um, Levitical law, particularly Leviticus 11. So Peter's pondering, why would God tell me to break cash root? Why would God command me to eat animals that he already told me are unclean? So Peter... Uh, pushes back against God's command. Peter, um, Peter, uh, 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 he he doesn't really argue with God, but he says, "Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean." In the English of your Bibles, Peter names two uh, adjectives to designate food. He says "common" and he says "unclean." This is where it can get a little bit technical. What does he mean by common? What does he mean by clean? So that's the question I ask and the, at the top of the page that you're looking at right now. Why does Kepha, i.e. Peter, why do they make the dual distinction between common and or unclean foods in verse 14 as we find it in our KJV? Some of your translations are going to say unholy and unclean. Some are going to say um, profane and unclean or common and unholy. Or You're going to have a kind of, kind of a, a, a range of words that's trying to translate these two Greek terms. So I think it's helpful if we get back into the mind of a first century religious Jew, uh, such as Paul or Peter, and figure out what these two words mean, and then take that meaning and carry it over into our understanding of the biblical topics at discussion. And uh, we haven't even really talked about how does this impact us today, because we don't even have a temple, we don't have sacrifices. I mean, is clean and unclean even relevant for us today? We'll get to that in a second, but first we have to get through this little technical hurdle. So bear with me, I'm going to read through this kind of verbatim, all this straight down, and then I, I'll go back and explain any part that uh, you need a little bit of help with. Um, so here's what I have to say in my commentary. Um, answer. Common in the English of verse 14, and interestingly enough, by coincidence, when I say verse 14, I really mean 
uh, Acts 10.14, but this um, also, uh, since we're talking about Romans 14.14, then we we have a little bit of carryover between the discussion. We're talking about the word common, which is one Greek word, and we're also talking about the word unclean, which is another Greek word. And so... um, the word common in the English of, verse, of Acts 10.14 is the Greek word koinos. Also, in Romans 10.14, when Paul says, I've never, uh, I, I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean, it's actually the same Greek word koinos. So right away, you should be able to, um, you should be um, perceiving that there's a little bit of confusion here. In, in the same interpretive Bible in the same in uh, um, same interpretation the same uh, um, version Bible KJV that we're picking on right now in one passage we have the English word common represented by the Greek word koinos and then in another passage in Romans we have the Greek word koinos but it's represented by a different English word which is unclean so but Peter calls Peter says common or unclean does that mean the Greek has koinos or koinos Actually, it doesn't. That's the challenge. All right. So what I say is, this word koinos, or the English word common in Acts 10.14, actually refers to biblically defined and permitted food like beef or chicken or lamb, etc. Such food that has been rendered profane or common, right? Handled by everyone is what the word koinos actually refers to. Um, It's rendered profane, for instance, by contact with that which the Bible forbids and does not define as food, such as pork, shellfish, shrimp, buzzards, spiders, mouse, etc. So, um, give me a second. I want to see if I can get that a little bigger. Yeah, I do want that bigger. Let's, let's go like that. I'm, I'm going to stick with the larger size there. Easier for me to read, easier for you guys to see. So, we're talking about this idea of what would Peter have understood by using the phrase common and unclean in his day. In the Greek, he uses the word koinos for the word common, and for the word unclean, he uses another word that we haven't really discussed yet, but we'll get to it. I say in my commentary, the force of this word uh, koinos that is common, when compared to akathertos, is that Koinos connotes that which man declares unclean, whereas akathertos connotes a God-given declaration of uncleanness. Now, this word akathertos, this is the Greek word that uh, this is the second Greek word that Paul uses. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that Peter uses when he tells God, "No, I've never eaten anything common, koinos, or unclean, akathertos." Let me interject real quick and turn to the passage so you can see this for yourself. On my screen right now, I've got the tool at BibleHub.com pulled up for the interlinear. And you can see on my screen, um, this is the interlinear, so it's kind of wooden, word-for-word, uh, word-order, word syntax. Uh, but in the English, uh, Peter says, and P- or Luke writes, And Peter said, In no way, Lord, for never have I eaten anything common or unclean. Let me scroll so you can see just the two words. Common or unclean. And you can see right away, the word common is represented by the Greek word koinon in the uh, the, um, the inflected version. The root word is koinos, which I'll show you in a second. And unclean, the second adjective, is rendered by the um, inflected word akathertan, um, which is the root word akathertos. So let's look at these just real quick. Um, koinon. 
All right, we looked at this before as well. Is Strong's number 169, the original Greek word is um, akathartos. And you can see from the Strong's Concordance over on the left side of the screen, it's generally rendered unclean or impure. Um, and it's a very strong word. Um, the word help studies shows that it's um, linked to something that's um, um, a wrong mixture. It's 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 tainted by sin. Um, it's it's uh it's a strong word that actually shows up in the um, Leviticus passage in, in um, Leviticus chapter eleven to describe. And I'll just show you this real quick to describe food that God says is unclean or animals that are unclean. Like in Leviticus eleven forty seven, God tells Moses to make a difference between the unclean and the clean, speaking about animals. Um, and the Hebrew says, lahavdil bain hatame uvein hatahor, clean and unclean. And we looked at this last week, how that in the uh, Greek right there, diastelai ana mesontone akatharton kai ana mesontone katharon. You can hear it in the Greek, akatharton, Akathartone, um, akathartone, uh, sorry, getting the stress in the wrong direction there, um, akathartone, and this word is the, the word that God designates as unclean. In my opinion, the, the just the easiest way to uh, interpret this word in English would be unclean. And let's stick with that. If we were consistent in our translations, we might not be so confused. So going back over to Acts 10, um, Peter uses this phrase, unclean, and the KJV does a good translation for us. It renders um, a katharton there as um, unclean. However, the other word, common, that's where we're going to get a little tripped up. It's it's the uh, root word koinos. Let me bring that one into the discussion here for you. Strong's number 2839 from this particular BibleHub.com tool, tool. Koinos, as you can see on my screen, is rendered common, shared, um, Hebraic used, profane, dirty, unclean, unwashed. Uh, shared by all. Basically, if I scroll to the word help studies, it's... Um, refers to that which is stripped of specialness. It's treated as ordinary or common. Um, we could say defiled, but it describes the result of a person reducing what God calls special to what is mundane, stripping it of its sacredness. So here's the second word that Peter used. I've never eaten anything common, koinos, or unclean, right? Akathardos. So the challenge is that the KJV, when it gets to Romans, it renders this word, koinos, as unclean when it should have rendered it as common paul says i've am persuaded in the lord jesus that nothing is should say common in and of itself but instead the kjv changes it over to unclean it already used the word unclean for akathartos so that's a little confusing that's the point i'm trying to bring up as we're having this particular study so let's go back to my roman study Here's what I have to say. So we're talking about common and unclean, akathartos and koinos, um, or koinos and akathartos, respectively. This Greek word, koinos, is actually not found in the Septuagint, the LXX reading of Leviticus chapter 11, the Greek version of the Tanakh. And the reason that's significant for us is because when God wants to point to an animal and says that is unclean, 
he uses a Hebrew word that the Greek translators carry over as akathertos. It's that strong, God-defined adjective when pointing to animals that are off the eating list. Don't eat these foods because they are unclean. They are tame. They are, that's the Hebrew. They are akathertos. That's the Greek. So when we look at this word koinos, by comparison, it is an adjective. It should be rendered common in your Bible. When we compare it to akathertos, the word that God chose, you know, the God, the, the word that God inspired the, the Hebrew, the Greek translators of the Hebrew Bible to um, uh, portray, I believe that was God inspired, then we don't find the word koinos showing up in Leviticus 11. What this indicates to me by um, logical deduction, even if God doesn't just come out and say it, is that koinos is a lighter designation. It's a, more of a man's way of tacking on an extra adjective or designator to anything that he wants to further clarify. So we got a God-allowed piece of food, but nevertheless it's, it's rendered common because of its contact of something questionable. Then man comes along and says, even though God says it's okay to eat, it's permissible on the Leviticus 11 list, nevertheless, I'm going to, this man comes along and says, nevertheless, I'm going to um, avoid it because it's got questionable origins or, you know, it came from a market that I don't trust or uh, no telling how many people have touched that piece of beef, something like that. Kiva cannot comply with the Lord's request uh, because the sheet clearly contains both food and non-food items of which the food items have now been declared by Peter himself as contaminated, that is common or koinos, by contact with the non-food items. So you're understanding the force of the way these words work together. Peter says, I have never eaten anything that is common, that is um, handled by everybody, or unclean, that is uh, declared by God as not permissible to eat. So the two words are working together in Peter's mind. Common, which is the Greek word koinos, is Peter's way of saying, even though it actually is permissible to eat, from God's perspective, nevertheless, because it's in contact with um, things that are perhaps either unclean, like uh, unclean animals, or perhaps uh, it may have been handled in an idolatrous service or something like that, um, I, I, I've avoided those particular foods as well. I don't shop in questionable markets or, or, or places like that. I don't shop at the back of the uh, pagan temple where the meat was passed through and sold uh, to the commoners. I haven't engaged in that type of eating, Lord. Never. No. No. Not so. I've never eaten anything that is handled by everyone or um, off the list according to your um, own scriptures, your own words. That's what Peter's trying to tell um, God. And the way this is connected to Romans 14.14 14, is that Paul says, I am persuaded by Yeshua that nothing is common in and of itself. Why? Because, and I'm filling in by with my own commentary, the reason Paul could say that is because it's man's declaration that makes something common. Paul can't come along and uproot what God laid down by way of a commandment. And Yeshua certainly wouldn't come along and blatantly 
flagrantly disregard what the Father had already commanded in Leviticus. Jesus wouldn't come along and tell Paul, hey, guess what? My father told Moses, tell the Israelites, this food is unclean. Pork is unclean. But I, the Lord Jesus, am going to tell you, Paul, that pork is no longer unclean. And so I want you, Paul, to explain this to everyone else in your letter to Romans, that I'm telling you that nothing is unclean in and of itself. And But if someone still thinks it's unclean, if someone still thinks pork is unclean, then their opinion is greater than my father's commandment or even my commandment. I'm filling in with humorous commentary, so follow along with me. I, the Lord Jesus, tell you, Paul, that you can go ahead and write to the Roman uh, believers there that nothing's unclean. I'm telling you nothing's unclean in of itself. But if someone thinks it's unclean, then their opinion is really what matters most in this particular discussion. It's not what my father says that matters the most. It's not even really what I, the Lord Messiah, Yeshua, say matters the most. It's really what this last guy on the list, this individual person, whatever he says is unclean, really that's going to be the final say. If he thinks it's unclean, it's unclean. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing my father can do about it. We don't really matter. What he says is what the final decision. Now, I, I spun that version humorously for a point. The point is that in our discussions of having this, of understanding Romans 14, 14, in our common interpretations, that's practically speaking the way that we play it out. We say, well, you know, Paul says that nothing's unclean of itself, and really, so it, it doesn't really matter, it, it, except if the person's conscience tells them that it's unclean, then, then it still is unclean to him. But in the end, Jesus says everything's clean right? Nothing's unclean in and of itself. And that's the way we spin the passage. It's almost as if to say, what God said is unclean doesn't matter anymore. And even what Jesus said was clean or unclean doesn't really matter. The final decision is made by this guy on the end of the equation, whoever this believer is or unbeliever, who says, it's unclean to me. So really it doesn't matter if you've got 100 people in a congregation and 99 of them say, pork is unclean. The one guy who says... Mm, I think it's, uh, I'm sorry, if, if, if you have a, a, a hundred guy, uh, 99 people who say uh, pork is uh, clean, it's permissible, it's, it's allowed to eat, but one person says, no, it's unclean, then suddenly you have a little bit of break in fellowship that one person says it's unclean. So to him it's unclean, but to the 99 people it's clean. That's really not the best way to understand the passage. It would change a lot if we simply went back over converted back over into thinking of this as a discussion of man's preferences for food that's handled by everyone. It's not a discussion of what God thinks is clean or unclean or what Jesus would deem as clean or unclean. It's really a discussion on foods that are already permissible or not permissible by God's list, but then have an extra designation from a man who comes along and says, well, wait a minute, where did that come from? That's questionable or not questionable. That that seems to fit the socio-historical religious context of Paul's letter better than the um, the the uh, supposition that he's talking about um, nothing's unclean, meaning pork and shrimp and all that stuff. Uh, you can go ahead and have a go at that. Let's continue reading this section. The English term unclean in uh, the Acts passage is the Greek word akathertos, as I already mentioned. There are two different Greek words. Peter says common 
and that renders the English the, the, that's the English equivalent of the Greek word akathertos. I'm sorry, the uh, the Greek word uh, koinos. And then he says unclean, and that's the equivalent, as I say here, of the uh, Greek word akathertos. This word akathertos, I say in my commentary, is actually a composite of the article a. Ah, plus the word katairo or katairo. And katairo means, quote, to cleanse of filth or impurity. And the article A is used to negate the meaning, that is, give the opposite significance. You understand this is basically the way our English works as well. We have word, then we have the word A in front of it, or the prefix un, or something like that. And it changes the word uh, uh, around. Like you guys remember from several years back, we had the cola commercial, the 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 comment, the, uh, the commercials for the cola, and then along came I think it was like Seven Up or something, and Seven Up was the un cola, right? What's the un cola? It's the opposite of cola, right? It's the it's the cola that's not cola. Cola is dark, right? It's brown. That's cola, like Coca Cola and Pepsi. And then we had these commercials for this clear, refreshing pop, soda pop uh, that was. Uncola, I think it was seven up. I could be wrong there. Thus, uh, akathertos is ah plus katharos. Thus, I say in my commentary, uh, thus, akathertos equals unclean. So we have clean plus the ah, which renders it unclean, right? Um, and I, sh I reflect this, by the way, in um, my uh, rendering of the Greek words um, katharos, strong number 2513. As you can see in my screen here, I don't spend a lot of time focusing that, but it's just a common word for the word clean. Whether we're talking about something that God cleanses or that man uh, indicates is clean, it's still the same Greek word. So there's really no confusion there. Clean is clean is clean. Um, so I say in my commentary, however, this time we have the equivalent Hebrew term of this word showing up in the uh, the Septuagint, the LSX version of, Sept of Leviticus chapter 11. Everywhere the Hebrew word Tame is found, the LSX chooses akathertos. Again, you don't have to know this to understand the passages. I'm just trying to give you a little bit more of the background behind some of the languages. It's it's not crucial that you know this. It's helpful if you know this. Um, really, I think you can figure this out from context. But if you go back into the Hebrew or Greek, it just kind of cements this to me in your mind. To fully grasp Kepha's choice of wording, I say that we must understand that a Jewish definition of applying a kathartos to that which the Torah describes as non-food stems from the conclusion that Hashem created certain animals with observable traits and behaviors that warrants their biblical label tamay, unclean. So God has a list of animals in, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, by the way, 14, there's another smaller listing of the same Leviticus passage. And God, and I'm closing with this, by the way, um, we'll finish this little paragraph and then uh, we'll draw the study to a close. Um, God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, there are certain animals that have observable behaviors and traits, the way they behave when they eat or when they um, graze or sort uh, of whatnot. And as you observe these characteristics, this is your way of understanding which ones that I've told you are permissible for eating and which ones are prohibited based on the behaviors that I, God, 
created them with. The animals don't have a say in the matter. The animals aren't purposely trying to behave a certain way so that you can understand um, which ones are clean and unclean. No, I, God, created them to behave this way. Therefore, all you have to do is look at them and learn from what I'm telling you. If they do X, Y, Z, then they're unclean. If they don't do X, Y, Z, then they're permissible or something like that or vice versa. So that's the general gist of this phrase, uh, tame or uh, kathertos or unclean. And others, I go on to say in my commentary, without certain observable traits and behaviors, um, this warrants their biblical label tahor or clean. So it's the opposite of tame. So um, I go on to say in my commentary, we need to understand that when we're talking about the animals, this is not a defect in the animals themselves. So just because one animal, one animal has a split hoof and chews the cud, and the other animal doesn't have a split hoof and doesn't chew the cud, or has a split hoof but doesn't chew the cud, or something like that, or for instance, look when we look at fish, as long as the fish has observable fins and scales, it's edible, but if it hasn't doesn't have both fins and scales, so like a shark, let's say it has fins but it doesn't have scales, you know, like a catfish as well, so it's smooth-skinned, it has fins, but it's missing the scales, um, or something like that, this doesn't mean that the animal's defective, right? It doesn't mean that a shark is defective because it doesn't have scales. It doesn't mean that a catfish is defective, that God created defective animals. That's not the point. The point is, God created fish with fins and scales, and God created fish without fins and scales. God created both of them. And God is simply saying to Moses, look at the animals and observe certain traits and behaviors and characteristics. And the ones that have these traits and behaviors and characteristics, they're permissible. And the ones that don't have these uh, traits and behaviors and characteristics, they are not permissible. And that's the simple matter that we're talking about. The animals are not defective. They have other uses in God's creation. They're just not for putting in our mouth. Okay, so I could close this section by saying, in my opinion, this speaks of the superior intellect of a creator that is in control over the ecosystem that he created. So God has a purpose for the animals that he decided that he doesn't want Israel to eat, to ingest in, to put into their mouths, to put into their bellies. Uh, God has another reason for those animals, um, and uh, I'm not wise enough and clever enough to think I figured out all the reasons why God um, created some animals one way and other animals another way. The point being is it's just better if we do it God's way, right? Are we going to die if we uh, put a, a, a prohibited animal into our mouth? Are we going to die if we bite down on a ham sandwich? Are we going to um, suddenly uh, get violently ill if we um, eat shrimp cocktail or, or uh, clam chowder or something like that? No, you're, you're probably not going to die. I'm pretty certain you're not going to. And even though I'm not a doctor, I'm, I'm pretty safe in saying you probably might not even get sick. Um, so it means that, um, as we're, and we're going to discuss this in weeks to come, there are other reasons why God uh, uh, told us to eat what to eat and not to eat. And part of it has to do with health, but I think there's a, a larger reason. And I'll look at that in weeks to come, so don't worry about it if we're not getting it tonight. But next week, we'll pick up uh, the rest of our commentary on um uh, these technical terms, and we'll push this into how Paul um, used the same term, koinos, in Romans 14, when he says nothing is unclean and of itself. And in conclusion, I think it's best to understand Paul saying nothing is common in and of itself. 
nothing is um, is designated by man as common. In and of itself, it's okay and it's permissible to eat as long as God said it's okay. God gave the thumbs up, then man can come along and say it's okay as well. Uh, but if another man comes along and says, no, that's questionable, even though God says it's okay, it's questionable because of the source then it's okay for um, us to abstain because it's not a, a, um, a disobedience to what God had already said is um, permissible. We're not violating the biblical command by uh, steering clear of something that's questionable. That's the whole point. And that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and pick up the study where we left off last week. We're talking about this idea of God's um, nature, and this is a discussion of ontology. There's another technical term. If you haven't figured it out by now, when I do my Torah studies, I like to engage in technical terminology uh, at the beginning of my studies. This helps me launch into a better understanding of what I think any particular passage is talking about. And we've been entertaining this idea of whether or not Yeshua is God veiled in flesh. We're in part two of the study. This is review. And we're looking at Dr. Bo Branson's um, appeal to history. And what Dr. Branson has uncovered during his research is that the God of history, or the God of the Bible, as we um, go back and look at history, the God of the Bible has always been understood as God the Father. From the earliest days in the scripture, even if we don't have the word Father um, tacked onto his name, by the time that we get to verses where it explicitly says Father, like in the Apostolic Scriptures, we understand it's the same God. It's not like he suddenly became a father, like he suddenly had a son and became a father. Instead, Dr. Branson says, the early church fathers actually always understood that the Father of Jesus is the same God of the Bible, and thus God has always been the Father. It's what we call the monarch, the um, the monarchy of the Father. How does he describe it? Um, uh, monarchical Trinitarianism, not to be confused with monarchianism. Please don't get lost in my technical terms here. Do a Google search. Monarchianism, or modalistic monarchianism, is, an, is a heretical form of biblical monotheism that says that God is only one person and that he has no um, personhood beyond the single identity known as God the Father or somebody like that. Uh, in other words, um, modalistic monarchianism thinks that there are no Son and Holy Spirit to contend with or something to that effect. And so it's it's heresy. It's it's a, a, a skewed view of who God is. Modalistic monarchianism. That's not what I'm talking about now. Um, Dr. Uh, Branson favors an approach to Trinity that is referred to as monarchical Trinitarianism. So they sound similar. Monarchical Trinitarianism, thumbs up. Modalistic monarchianism, thumbs down. Understand what I'm saying here? Okay. So, what is modalistic monarchianism? <clears throat> uh, I'm sorry, what is um, uh, monarchical Trinitarianism? Uh, it's the idea that God is a father. And because he is a father, and because his nature is such that he is eternal, then fatherhood is something that's essential to his identity. And thus, we can, um, we can safely understand that the Son is eternal along with the eternal Father.
That's the general logic. I pick up the commentary this way. This is Dr. Um, Branson's quote. Whether or not Trinitarianism is defensible logically, metaphysically, biblically, or what have you, depends not only on whether some particular account of the Trinity is defensible in that sense, he goes on to say, but also on which particular accounts of the Trinity count as Trinitarian. So, um, for instance, if you go through the historical records on what is Trinity, uh, looking up various accounts of Trinity, you're going to find that uh, down through history for the last 2,000 years or so, there have been various um, uh, disagreements over what the definitions of this triune nature of God is. Some versions of Trinity, when we're talking about discussions on the issues of Trinity and Trinity theories, some versions of Trinity describe um, Trinity as one God with three masks. Like that's called modalism, a God who is has a single identity as a being, but he wears these facades on the outside to fool humans or to interact with humans, a mask that he can swap out. That's modalism. That's a heresy that we Trinitarians soundly reject, and thus the Church Fathers also soundly rejected it, just like they rejected modalistic monarchianism. There's another um, uh, version of Trinity that is considered um, uh, heresy that's known as um, tritheism, where it's actually three separate and distinct gods that we're dealing with. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Separate and distinct from one another. No cohesion. Not one god, but three gods. This is still a version of Trinity, um, but as most uh, Orthodox uh, small o, uh, biblical evangelical Trinitarians would agree, this is heresy. This is not something we believe in. We do not believe in three gods. We do not serve three gods. Um, that's error. And so that's a version of Trinity that we soundly reject. The point being, when we're having discussions on the issues of Trinity, we have to rightly recognize that there are different accounts of Trinity that have been proposed down through the ages, and it's up to us to understand which of these definitions are biblically accurate. So Dr. Um, uh, uh, Branson goes on to say, after all, Arianism and modalism are both accounts of the Trinity. Arianism is that form of Trinity that says that God is eternal God and Jesus is this lesser creature that God created at some point in time and then later on deified and exalted so that he's worthy of worship. Uh, so this form of Trinity, known as Arianism, something that we Trinitarians soundly reject, it's a version that reduces Jesus the Son to a mere human. It strips him of his God identity and reduces him to a creature that's created by God. This is Arianism. And then there's modalism, and one of my um, uh, uh, participants in my live studies class asked me last week, can you redefine modalism one more time? Yes, sure, I'd be happy to. Modalism is that form of Trinity doctrine that says that God is one being, and the only person to this being is God himself, or God the Father, if you want to call it that. The masks that he wears, that he slips on and off, are the mask of the Father, the mask of the Son, the mask of the Holy Spirit. And so thus, throughout history, when we're reading through the Bible of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it's really one God, but 
instead of being three persons, it's one God, three masks. And so there's really only one being with one identity, and he's got a singular identity, and he just swaps out these uh, uh, disguises as he interacts with humans. That is heresy. It's error. It's called modalism. Modern-day oneness Pentecostals, in most regards, seem to practice a form of modalism that describes the being that God is known as taking on the name of Jesus. And so thus the name of the singular God is collapsed into the name Jesus, and thus there's no true identity known as Father or person. There's no true person known as the Holy Spirit either. Rather, the Father is a mode or a manifestation of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is likewise a power or manifestation of Jesus, but they're all collapsed under the name Jesus, so that Jesus becomes the singular being known as God, and he is the one that we exalt, and thus uh, we have those um, teachings that you know you have to be baptized in Jesus' name only, and things like that. Uh, that's um, what some, not all, uh, versions of oneness Pentecostalism teach, and that seems to fall into the category of modalism. Well, Dr. Branson just reminds us that Arianism and modalism are actually both accounts of Trinity, but he goes on to say neither counts as Trinitarian. Right? I'm a Trinitarian believer an orthodox, biblical, Trinitarian believer. The word orthodox with an O there doesn't mean I'm, I'm Greek orthodox or something like that as a, in contradistinction to Catholic with a small c. It simply means I'm using the word orthodox as the way I understand accurately um, portray, uh, portrayed in the Bible. That's what I mean by orthodox. Rightly understood from the historical biblical perspective is that God is one being. He's one what? But yet he expresses himself and he he is known in the three persons equally uh, as God. They're, full, they're all full deity, but yet it's one God. And it stretches my imagination, but nevertheless it's the way that the Bible portrays God. Um, and so I'm a Trinitarian. This is why, Dr. Branson says, why defenses of Arianism or modalism would not count as defenses of Trinitarianism, and conversely, why one way to criticize accounts of the Trinity is to say that they are forms of Arianism or modalism. So, um, we just have to be careful when we're having these technical discussions with one another. Uh, you know, sometimes we can get lost in the terminology. He goes on to say, but this raises the question, if not just any account of the Trinity, however defensible, would count as Trinitarian, then which accounts do count as Trinitarian so that a defense of one of them would count as a defense of Trinitarianism, right? It would be easier if God simply told us directly in his word this is the proper form of Trinitarianism. And he gave us like a formula, like, you know, X plus Y equals Z, you know, where Z is Trinitarian, and X plus Y are the variables or the um, the predicates, the predications um, in our little syllogism or something like that. So it would be easier if, if, in our little math equation, it'd be easier if God just came right out and said that. But instead, as we've talked about earlier, the Bible uses what I like to say as proprietary language, where it's got its own unique way of describing a God, an account of the God that we know, usually described in his actions or um, uh, uh, attributes or characteristics or something. It doesn't just come right out cleanly and say, 
God is one being with three persons, three what's and, one what and three who's or something like that. Um, Jesus has two natures, a, a, a divine nature and a heavenly nature. We don't have verses that just like are black and white. We do have verses that say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we have another passage that says that G, uh, that the, the word made flesh uh, created all things, you know. And then Job comes along and says, uh, the, you know, the spirit of God created me. Um, so we have places in the Bible where we, we can accurately begin to put the pieces together using logical deduction and arrive at a conclusion that is um, sanctioned by scripture that equals orthodox Trinitarian doctrine, but... In the end, we have to piece together a verse here, a verse there, a passage here, a passage here, so that we can get the whole comprehensive look. And I'm telling you, that's the right way to go about it. The reason error creeps in, in my opinion, as I, as I digress for a second, one of the reasons that error creeps in is because we're simply not willing to accept all of the Bible and all of its parts. It's like we've got an account over on this book that describes one aspect of God, and then we have an account in a different book that describes what seems to be on the surface, on the face of it, a, an, a, a separate, perhaps sometimes seemingly um, contradictory account of God on the other side. But in reality, if we zoom out and look at the big picture, they're both accurate accounts of the same God, just seen from two different angles that we're not always privy to. Thus, we talked about that phrase macru, M-A-C-R-U-E. We don't have any... any um, contradictions in the Bible. We simply have apparent contradictions based on information limitation or perspectives uh, that we're not aware of. So the Bible says in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Is that inaccurate? No, that's truth. That's accurate. We trust it. We believe it. But it's not until we get to the apostolic scriptures that we begin to realize in its fullness that this God that created the heavens and the earth is the word made flesh as well. And that Yeshua is is very God when it comes to creating. And that's why Paul and other apostolic writers can say without question that Jesus, that the Messiah, is the one who created all things. I mean, that, that, that blows our mind, that, 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 that challenges us, that stretches our understanding. But we have to understand that we're looking at the same God from two different angles, from one side of the equation and from the other side. And we, if we accept both of them, then we understand that this is the full picture. So let's conclude with what Dr. Branson says. Much recent analytic theology has been concerned with devising, hopefully defensible, accounts of the Trinity, but comparatively little attention has been given to this question of what it takes for an account of the Trinity to count as Trinitarian. Um, And I think he's uh, interacting with... uh, uh, Analytic theologians such as Dr. Dale Tucky, he's going to mention him by name here in a moment. But in case you're not aware, analytic theology is a form of theology that is extremely technical in its approach, and it seeks to understand words in their most logical sense so that they make sense um, and they reduce uh, ambiguity and um, uh, um, uncertainty and uh, confusion that's caused by language that's not properly articulated. So we talk about the classic um, ambiguity or um, um, unarticulated uh, equivocation created by this phrase God in the statement, Jesus is God. Um, you know, 
we can have two different types of Christians saying that Jesus is God. We have Christian A who says Jesus is God, and for them, they mean that Jesus is the being known as God, and that's all that God is. Thus, oneness Pentecostalism is a version of Jesus as God for Christian A. Comparatively, in my little example here, we have Christian B, who might be a Baptist evangelical, who says Jesus is God, and his understanding of Jesus as God means that Jesus is full divinity. Jesus the Son is not everything that God represents. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit's not the Son, and so the Holy Spirit's not the Father, and the, Holy, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and, and vice versa. So, so the the evangelical um, Baptist that I'm describing as Christian B, for him, Jesus is God. This is true. He affirms that. But when he states that Jesus is God, he's not saying that the Son is the Father. He's not collapsing the term uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into the word God as if to say that Jesus is the only is the being known as God. For him, the word Jesus is God is slightly different than Christian A, the um, one that's Pentecostal, who might actually believe that the being known as God is Jesus, and that's all there really is to the being known as God. There are no true distinct persons of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Everything is collapsed into the person or the name Jesus. So, and all of this is created by what I'm describing as equivocation or ambiguity on the phrase God. So that's where analytic theology steps in and tries to help out. It looks at Christian A and Christian B and says, let's have this discussion. Let's disambiguate, right? Remove the ambiguity, the uncertainty, the questionable terminology. Let's disambiguate this word God and pick it apart so that both of you have a chance to have your definitions and, um, and have a, a meaningful discussion without confusing one another when you say, do you believe Jesus is God? Oh yeah, Christian A says, do you believe Jesus is God? Christian B says, yeah, I do believe Jesus is God. And then the two of them walk away shaking hands saying, yep, yeah, we, we agree. When in reality, the third person, look, you know, the onlooker says, you guys don't disagree. I'm sorry, you guys don't agree because you have two definitions of the word God, right? This just ha this can happen with any word in the English language or any other language. Ambiguity creeps in and um, confusion ensues and two people can actually talk but not really have a meaningful conversation because they have different, different definitions of different terms. This is why I actually like to engage in the technical terms begin before I actually have any meaningful discussion, uh, if at all possible, someone so that we can disambiguate right up front so that the person I'm speaking with knows what I mean by my terms and they know what I'm sorry, and I know what they mean by their, their terms. This when they say, um, don't you think that it's okay to be isn't it okay for everyone to be gay? You know, for a different example, isn't it okay for everyone to be gay? Um, I might say, no, it's not okay to, for everyone to be gay. But what if the person is simply meaning happy? Like, you know, like it, like in the old Flintstone song, we'll have a gay old time. It wasn't talking of using the word gay the way we use it today's modern uh, 2021. When that Flintstone song came out, go back and look it up on the internet. The words, the lyrics to the Flintstone song, it uses the word gay. And I can promise you they weren't talking about the usage of gay that we use today. So thus, unless we define our technical terms, you know, gay, then um, we might have a really serious disagreement in the end uh, on this discussion. So these are just um, some suggestions for uh, people who are watching this commentary, that are watching this YouTube channel and things like that. Let me uh, conclude this part of my commentary um, with this particular paragraph. 
Uh, Dr. Branson says, indeed, to my knowledge, only Dale Tuggy, right, we've talked about him quite a bit, has given an explicit definition of Trinitarian versus Unitarian theology, much to Dr. Tuggy's credit. And I appraise Dr. Tuggy for his research there. Even though I disagree with Dr. Tuggy as a Unitarian, I am a Trinitarian and Dr. Tuggy is a Unitarian. And in the end, we disagree on who and what God is, but at least I respect Dr. Tuggy's research in trying to disambiguate excuse me, disambiguate the terms so that we can have a better, meaningful dialogue between Unitarians and Trinitarians. Dr. Uh, Branson concludes, but Tuggy's definitions are not given as a mere formality. Rather, he puts them to quite substantive use in his evaluations of both contemporary and historical sources, and they turn out to be essential to what is probably his most important criticism of Trinitarian theology. And uh, in the end, Dr. Branson, who is a Trinitarian, the one proposing um, a monarchical Trinitarianism where God is essentially a father, and because God's essence as a father is eternal, then God's nature must be understood as essentially um, including fatherhood, which carries over into Jesus being the eternal son, not a creature, right? In contradistinction to Dr. Tuggy's Unitarian theology. Dr. Branson disagrees in the end with some of Dr. Tuggy's uses and terms. Uh, Dr. Branson, if I understand his um, uh, thesis uh, that I've read a few different times, uh, he believes that Dr. Tuggy's definitions create a version of Trinitarianism that um, can be uh, understood by one uh, Trinitarian Christian one way and understood by another Trinitarian Christian a different way, and thus in the end, um, maybe the problem really isn't with biblical Trinitarian doc doctrine and theology so much as it's just a problem with Dr. Tuggy's definitions of the way Dr. Tuggy has uh, created and used them, so something to that effect. All right, and that'll do it for this section of uh, my Trinity study. Um, we'll look at more of this as in time. I don't know exactly what uh, what other parts of this. I don't have them highlighted at the moment, but we'll stop right here in my study uh, on exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We'll pick this up next week for some more review. Uh, we'll drop down a little bit farther into the study and uh, keep talking about this, okay? But that'll do it right now for uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn briefly to the uh, liturgy. We'll read the liturgy, then we'll watch the video, and then we'll be um, uh, done with tonight's study. And I'll accelerate this a bit. Uh, for the liturgy, this is a fan favorite. Um, I'm going to read the English of Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Um, you'd be amazed how many requests I get for this particular liturgy. Even though I've read this over and over again in the past, uh, for some reason it becomes a fan favorite. So I'm happy to oblige and, and read it again for you. So I'll read the English this week, and next week we'll read the Hebrew. Um, I want that a little bigger, don't I? Do I? Yeah, let's make that a little bigger. All right, so in English, uh, Genesis 1-1, ESV, starting on the left side of the screen right there. Uh, this is familiar for many people who've read their Bible. In fact, it's memorized by most. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Verse 4, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5, God 
called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Let's go back and read the Hebrew starting on the uh, right side of the screen right there for you guys. Reading from uh, right to left, just like Hebrew reads. The Hebrew says, Brishit bara Elohim et shemaim ve'et ha'aretz. Verse 2. haita tohu vavohu. Oops. What am I doing? I said I wasn't going to read the Hebrew tonight. Ah, ha, ha. Okay. Let's stop right there. We're not going to read the Hebrew. Read the Hebrew next week. Let's turn instead to the um, John passage and read some English, right? So English tonight, Hebrew and Greek next week. So just wait for it. Uh, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we read this in conjunction with Genesis 1 because of the similarity in wording in the beginning, right? It says uh, in, in both the uh, English renderings in the beginning. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God, speaking of this eternal word. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4 of John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we will read the Greek of that next week. But that'll do it for liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now to the uh, video. We'll watch the video. I think it's like five minutes long. And then after the video is over, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and E-Bible. Yep, that's me. Okay, here's our question. Did Jesus follow all the laws of the Old Testament? Funny question, huh? Let's answer. The short answer is yes and no. And I know you're scratching and saying, huh? What? What is Is it yes or is it no? Right? I don't understand your answer. All right, hang on. Let me explain. While Yeshua Jesus did not follow all of the laws because every single commandment cannot be kept by a single individual, because every single commandment does not apply to every single person, right? Makes sense so far? But nevertheless, he did keep them all. He followed them all, even though everything didn't apply to him alone. Let's keep reading my answer. He was, in fact, righteous. There's that word righteous again. He was righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Yeshua is righteous. Yeah, check out my bling bling there. All right, what is more, we too, by the power of the Spirit, can be blameless in God's sight by upholding the totality of the authority of each and every law of Moses. Hmm. How can I be righteous just like Yeshua was, we're asking ourselves. And in this way, we keep all of the Torah just like the Messiah did. Make sense? Yay! I am righteous! Yeah, that's something to cheer about. So, contrary to popular opinion, any believer under the power of the Spirit of God, just like Jesus was, can keep all the laws of God. Observe. And we read this verse in our liturgy. Uh, speaking of John the Baptist's parents, they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Wow! They were righteous. That's right. That's what you should be telling yourself. Now, were John the Baptist's parents perfect or sinless? Hardly. Yet, Luke says they were righteous and blameless in all the commandments. They were righteous and blameless. Yeah, they were both. 
Perfection? Is that what God asks of us? I don't think so. Let's cut that notion out of our head. Instead, blameless. That's what God's expecting of us. Blameless. Let's talk about this. God knows that some commandments are for kings, some for priests, some for women, some for parents, etc. And that every single commandment does not apply to every single person. God knows that because God is the author of the Torah. So you can't expect us to keep every single commandment as one individual because they don't all apply. That's why there's forgiveness and mercy and grace, as one preacher I used to know stated, from Genesis all the way to maps, right? Always has been, always will be. The cross is in the Torah. It's in the Torah. They're not separated. Get that notion out of your mind that that the New Testament and the New and the Old Testament are separated. That's not true. So I don't have to try to keep all of all the law perfectly, you might say. Yay, the law is not burdensome like I was taught. That's right. Alright, so conclusion. Yeshua was sinless, he was perfect, and he upheld the totality of the authority of each and every law of Moses. And in this way, you could say he guarded all of the commandments. The original Hebrew word for guard is shamar, but it's often translated as keep or do in some versions. Strong's number 8104, shamar. He guarded all of the commandments. He did them, but he guarded them. Most importantly for us to affirm in our conclusion is that as far as the commandments that applied to him as a non-king, non-priest, and single male with no offspring, he perfectly modeled Torah observance for all to see. Amen? Amen. And I think that's something that we can walk away with on a practical level that makes more sense to us as believers. Catch my podcasts. They're available on iTunes. Search term Ariel Hanavi. And for those of you who like to follow me on YouTube, and you're liking what you're seeing, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Give me a thumbs up there as well. New content is added weekly. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Ab, I bless your name. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a community that's able to meet together week after week, even if it is across the miles. Thank you, Lord, that you're bringing us together and that you're strengthening us by your word and by your spirit. Help us to continue to press in to your goodness and your mercy and to avail ourselves of your grace when it comes to understanding not just the topics of the Bible, but to practically apply them to our everyday lives. We seek to be stronger in you and to be relevant to the generation around us, to this generation that we live in, to the people around us. Help us to be bold in our witness and our testimony and share the things that matter most with the people that we love and the people that we encounter. Give us holy boldness. Give us uh, divine encounters. um, And protect us, Lord, from the dangers that are all around us. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. 
to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>